Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Hello again. Thanks for joining me. You know, if you think about it, we are an extremely licensed society. From the requirement to have professional licenses, to cut hair, sell cars, or work as a doctor, nurse, or lawyer. We must procure a license to drive, to own a dog, and a host of other things. Over the past two years, we have seen the effect of business licensure on small businesses threatened with the removal of their license if they refused to comply with the mandates coming from various levels of civil government. We have seen medical professionals lose or receive the threat to lose their license if they speak out against medical mandates. And I could cite other instances. The question is, is licensure biblical? For this, I've asked Jerry Lynn Ward, who has been a guest on this podcast before, to join us to discuss the topic. She's an attorney with a wide range of experience in areas of business and commercial litigation, including healthcare and regulatory litigation, and even dealing with health facility operational matters. She is a student of biblical law and is a good person to discuss who will have knowledge in both areas, but primarily I'd like to discuss with her how we got to the point where every aspect of our lives are licensed. So Jerry, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrea. So I was reading one of Dr. Rushduni's essays in uh, the book, Our Threat and Freedom, and he has quite a bit to say on licensure, but he makes the joke that he's glad that every year he doesn't have to renew his marriage license just to keep it current. And then he said, Well, maybe that's where we're headed. So as a professional and a Christian, how do you view the whole thing about needing a license? I've never been in support of licensing. Uh, To me, licensing is akin to the Tower of Babel, where authority and power uh, is uh, aggrandized and centralized by secular authorities, and I don't support it. And I think that it causes mediocrity in the professions, and it squashes all innovation, or most innovation, and any independent thought. So would you say it's correct to look at licensing basically as a tax? I think you could say that. That, it, that it, it's a form of tax because they are controlling the labor of the professional. And that's what taxes do, at least the, the, like the income tax certainly does that. So I joke with people oftentimes, it's like, well, you know, you always get a good haircut if the person's licensed. And we know that every driver is a good and safe driver. Why? Because they must have a license. So I think people have been convinced that licensure produces good quality. You said it produces mediocrity. Explain. Well, let me talk about uh, an area that I have been focusing on lately. 
I've been helping the families of patients in hospitals try to get actual treatment for COVID because the doctors will not deviate from the government-imposed or government-mandated COVID protocols. And the way that they are mandating this is by giving immunity to providers for any sort of malpractice or negligence that takes place in the treatment of COVID patients. And if they step outside what is prescribed by the federal government, then they lose that immunity. Plus, the government is using uh, financial incentives to get them to use an outdated, outmoded, and ineffective uh, protocol to treat COVID patients. And what I'm seeing here is doctors being unable to use their independent judgment. And if they try to do that, then the hospitals not only have the power to force them to undergo peer review and perhaps lose their credentials in that hospital, but also to have a potential loss of their license. In one of the cases that I had, we found a doctor who was willing to go into the hospital to administer the MATH Plus protocol, which is the ivermectin protocol that many doctors have found very effective. And she made national headlines because of our case. And what happened? First of all, she lost her privileges or they were suspended at the hospital that she actually had privileges at. And second of all, they referred her license to the Texas Medical Board. So that's the kind of power they have to stop doctors from doing what they think is best. Because right now we have a system, they call it evidence-based, but what it really is, is a straitjacket on doctors to treat medicine. The practice of medicine is not only being based on science, but as being an art based on their experience, based on what they have seen has been effective. And that is achieved by licensing. But also there are other aspects of that that impact the healthcare system, which is all this specialization, these people being certified in certain areas of practice, because that allows the hospitals to argue to judges that they cannot let a patient's treating physician into ICU because they are not certified as an intensivist or don't don't have the, the proper certifications to enter the ICU to administer treatments they know how to administer to ICU patients. This is actually causing the deaths of people. And that's my view of licensing and my view of any kind of action by the government or by arms of the government, such as those entities that give the certifications for which they make a lot of money. That's why I say it's causing mediocrity. So in other words, there's no incentive for medical professionals to keep learning about new, innovative, effective things, because if they move outside the boundaries of what is considered accepted and established, that then they're actually moving into malpractice because they don't agree with the certification boards. Yeah, well, they're not malpracticing. They're entering an area of uh, the government pretending that they're malpracticing. Well, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. In other words, you know, doctors have to have malpractice insurance. And the reason being is that we tend to, we say that we're a litigious society, but that sort of oversimplifies it because it makes it as though 
people who sue are always wrong any more than we would say doctors who are sued are always right. So I guess my question is, how did we get here to the point where, you know, you can't rescue a dog or you can you know, I, I know a couple that um, was going to do an, an adoption, a private adoption, but the state has to get involved with this and everything. So is it that from your perspective, people didn't see this was a Trojan horse? Totally. And then that's what happened in the practice of law as well. It's, 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 it is the megalomaniacal drive of people to achieve power over others. And, and to have their particular position deem the truth despite re- the reality of the situation. And it's happening in law. And I'll tell you what's happening in law. Uh, for instance, the Texas Medical Board, uh, I'm sorry, the, te- the State Bar of Texas uh, has been involved in a lawsuit that went before the Fifth Circuit because they, the, the uh, bar was trying to force its political position on all lawyers and making us pay for things that we don't agree with. And it essentially was ignoring a huge constituency of lawyers who are more conservative and traditional. And, and despite the fact that they were slapped down by the fifth circuit, they continue trying to come up with a mandate that lawyers take what is essentially continuing legal education that, involves critical race theory and and to force that on attorneys so they are trying to control the conscience i mean the history of the reformation is one big fight for freedom of conscience right the secular forces do not want freedom of conscience whoever gets power wants to impose their conscience on everyone else and that's what licensing does uh, that's what credentialing does. That's what accreditation of universities does, is forcing things down the throats of others, with particular down the throats of conservative Christians. So we, we, we know that just because someone has a license doesn't mean they're necessarily good at what it is they do. But I was thinking as I was preparing for this, to be a congressman or a senator or a mayor, do you have to be licensed to hold those positions? No, you have to meet certain qualifications, but there's no licensing. They don't have to do that. And uh, the qualifications are usually something like, you know, age, where you live, that sort of thing. So they're, they don't have anything to do really with competence. Isn't that interesting, though, that everybody else needs to be licensed, but to hold positions of political office, they haven't done the same thing for themselves. Right. But the, the, but that's the fault of the constituencies. We went along with that. We went along with the idea that doctors should be licensed, that lawyers should be licensed. It used to be lawyers weren't required to go to law school. They read the law. They, they apprenticed with other lawyers, which is, I think, probably a better way to learn how to practice law than going to a law school. Going to law school or going to medical school means that your course of study is going to be prescribed. And when you mentioned continuing education for professionals in medicine, I know what's true is that pharmaceutical companies are often the ones 
who will pay to uh, have these conventions or these certifications. And then they'll, you know, have a nice weekend and, you know, the medical professional can choose where he or she's going to go for this education. So it's very, very directed education where they're not going to look at other things that maybe don't produce as big a revenue for pharmaceutical companies. It's completely incestuous because the pharmaceutical companies are the major contributor of money to the AMA. They make more from donations from big pharma than they do from memberships because a lot of doctors don't even want to belong to the AMA. The same thing with, with the medical schools. They receive grants and and money from big pharma. So many people, myself included, you know, I was born in the middle part of the 20th century. You know, the big exciting things that when you got to be a certain age, you could get a driver's license. And so licensing is very much ingrained in our culture. And I've talked to people who are on the hurting end of having to deal with business closure or requirements that are counter to what the purpose of their business or even ministry is all about. I've heard people say, this will never go away. We're stuck with licensure. Do you think that's the case? Do you think this will never go away? Well, the way it seems right now, I can't see it going away in the foreseeable future unless there's like a total breakdown of of a lot of parts of society. So as an attorney, let's say you were to lose your practicing privileges. Does that mean that for you to appear in court, that you wouldn't be allowed to appear in court representing someone? Exactly. I couldn't even write a contract for anyone and, and get paid for it. So if people, you know, like I think back on the recapturing of Christian education, that churches started Christian schools or parents decided, you know what, we're going to go ahead and educate our own children. And some of the criticism was, well, you're not credentialed. You know, you don't have a license to teach or something, but people did it anyway. And eventually that pushed forward. Do you see that as something that could be an organized pushback coming from the people of God? I think so. in, in many different areas, um, I at, th- at this point, I can't foresee that in law, and I can't really foresee that in medicine, except maybe with more natural type practitioners. However, they can run afoul of, of medical boards, too, because they could be charged with unlicensed practice of medicine, that sort of thing. But, you know, I think but I think you're right. It has to be done on the edges. Yeah. So. For example, they can be told they're practicing medicine without a license. Well, if you have an individual who's willing to take guidance from someone who's unlicensed and is willing to take the risk of this may not work, how does the government really have an interest in that except for a contrived one? If they find out about it. And years ago, I had a client who... Uh, had a medical degree, but never wanted to get licensed. And he did something as simple as saying, telling a housemate that he ran afoul of later on that I found that using garlic and honey helps me with congestion. 
and the Texas Medical Board started coming after him for unlicensed practice of medicine. Okay, so, but take that, unlicensed practice of medicine. So if I call you up and, and you have a bad cold and I say, you know, Jerry Lynn, what you should do is take some honey and mix it with apple cider vinegar and you'll feel better. Technically, could I be charged with practicing medicine without a license? That's possible. I, I would say that that would depend on how well known you are and whether you had appeared on any radio shows. I see. By talking about things like that. I mean, you'd have to come on their radar and be a particular target. I mean, because I'll, I'll tell you, uh, allopathic medicine goes on the war path against anything that's alternative and nutritional. As a matter of fact, it's sort of common knowledge once you study the subject a little bit that in medical school, there isn't even a course in nutrition as food, as medicine. And that's why the first line is here, take this pill or, and, and even to the point of, I'll give you a couple of samples so that you can see how well this works. I've given up on trying to have meaningful conversations with a lot of doctors because they can't think outside their parameters of, I could get in trouble. Exactly. And let me tell you, this uh, partly stems from the fact that uh, medical education was completely reformed at the beginning of the 20th century on a top-down basis. When the Rockefeller Foundation commissioned an investigation called the Flexner Report, and the whole purpose was to elevate allopathic medicine and to destroy any other school of medicine. And so, of course, you follow the money and who gets funded gets to grow, gets to attract people who are looking for the best kind of education and assuming if it's a bigger medical school with lots of nice buildings and, and a lot of famous people attached to it. That's why I think it's really important for the family to recapture medicine in this regard and learning how to stay healthy so that you don't have this whole cascade of problems. You know, still when you break your arm, you still want to have somebody set it, but you things like diabetes and, and high blood pressure and things like that can be remedied with different lifestyle choices and practices. Exactly. So I've talked to people who want to set up situations where groups of people come together and they contract with each other to support each other and not to take each other to a civil court if there's a dispute and going back to the idea of church courts to settle disputes. And I suppose we could look back to it was the Christian church that started things like hospitals and, and, and orphanages and things like that. When you said things would have to happen along the edges, what might that look like? Well, I know it, with, with respect to law in Rome, uh, during the rise of Christianity, they, they had their own courts. Uh, they, besides the hospitals, they had their own courts. And in fact, non-believers would sometimes go to those courts because they were much, much more just than the Roman courts. They, they were, the Roman courts were respecters of person. It depended on who you are as to what kind of result you got. So arbitrations, peacemakers, things of that nature, I would consider as could be on the edge, although arbitration now has statutes that govern it. 
the, the peacemakers movement for mediations is probably a better model. But the thing is that nobody's been trained in proper application of God's law and justice. And, that, and I'm including that in some of the church courts. You, you have to train men who understand not to be respecters of person, have to understand the application of God's law, and who believe completely in objective justice. Unless somebody fears God, that the law of God will be followed in terms of not being a respecter of persons, then you will likely have justice because if the person is a fool and doesn't think God sees and doesn't think God cares, or it's like outside of nobody sees, so I'm fine with this. I don't think it'll happen. So I, I think we might be in a position where Christian attorneys need to help educate people on how not so much to work within the system, which is still important, but how to set up a truly Christian system, a parallel system, and like the early years of the uh, Christian church, where even non-believers would come and say, help us out with this. Yeah, I, I have to say that I think the only lawyers who could do that are lawyers who are theonomists. Yeah, which is why understanding that law to be valid and considered righteous before God has to be in conformity with the Bible. And uh, I've had conversations with people on things that maybe because I've done this so long that I understand, but they still don't, they don't see how an understanding of God's law would affect the success of whatever political effort they're doing. I mean, when people say we got to get more Christians into office, well, they better know what they're talking about and understand that getting into office, it's not because of who they are, it's who they represent and how faithfully they represent him. Exactly. Yeah, because I think Christian conservatives essentially engaging in hypocrisy in, and, and applying unjust weights and measures, depending on whether it's their guy taking an action as opposed to the other guy, so, which is very concerning. And we're seeing a lot of that in present circumstances. So getting back to the subject of the license, so, you know, people, when they are going to get married, I have to go get a marriage license. What would be the net effect if someone didn't get a marriage license, got married in the church, and that's, you know, they, they were committing to each other before God? Do you see that as a viable thing to not go down the road of a marriage license? Well, I see it as a viable thing because I believe in colonial times that the church registered marriages. So there was, you know, there was some sort of documents showing that some people were married so they can't you know they couldn't later pretend that they were married when they weren't or pretend that they were never married but insofar as these days uh you know of course the, those are called common law marriages now and those are addressed state by state in state statutes right but i mean i yeah i i, I think they're that there probably ought to be some way to memorial to document a marriage, but the licensure thing came about to prevent certain people marrying other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, you know, just the state trying to again, expand and control the family. So 
if people were going to pursue a course of how to get back onto a biblical platform, do you think a lot has to do with doing things on a local level as opposed to trying to fix this from the top down? Oh, yeah. I think uh, the federal government is unfixable. And I think we have to start at the local and county level and then the state level. One of the things that people find difficult is to how to combat media censorship or suppression. Even the whole idea of having an FCC to license certain um, groups to be able to use God's airwaves um, is another interesting thing because people can find themselves unable to express themselves if somebody's going to censor them because they haven't met a certain standard. So it's a, it's a form of licensure in as much as uh, not so much that you have to pay to use social media because most often you're not, but the idea that um, they've got to protect themselves if somebody says something that isn't appropriate or leads to something else. Well, let me first address what you said about the FCC, because corruption followed it from its early inception. I don't know if you know the story of LBJ, President Johnson. He wanted his wife to be able to own a radio station. And there was one here in Texas, I think it was in Austin, that he set his sights on. And he was able to have the FCC take action against that innocent owner in such a way that he lost his the innocent owner lost the station to Johnson. Interesting. So whenever I think about licensing, I think about things like that because it is a form of licensing. And insofar as these, these uh, private platforms like Facebook and and all that, uh, there's a possibility that they are acting as public actors in contravention of the constitution. And there may be a lawyer someday who figures out a way to sue them uh, for constitutional violations because they are acting as public actors. When you have the president of the United States getting on TV, either himself or through one of his underlings, uh, advising Facebook or advising Twitter uh, not to allow some kind of speech, I, I think you have a private government, a, a private a, a partnership between government and that in, that private entity working in collusion to deny the first first amendment rights to citizens if we look at an overall plan i used the term trojan horse before for those who aren't familiar with it it's this big structure that actually had armies hidden within it so that it looks like there's no big threat and then of course infiltration happens because who's inside will eventually come out So it looks as though from the educational sphere, the medical sphere, the legal sphere, I'm not sure we can say we're going to reform it. I think we have to replace these spheres. Do you agree? I agree. I agree that we need parallel structures. But I also not only use the analogy of Trojan horse, I use the analogy of a a, a, Get, taking taking the cheese, a rat who go who sees cheese in a trap, and then the trap snaps down on him. Uh, a lot of what we're sustaining now is because of human greed and avarice, and uh, taking the cheese and then being entrapped. 
an example of that is this movement by conservatives and conservative Christians to get vouchers that can be applied to private schools, including Christian schools and home uh, and, and homeschoolers. That is cheese attached to a trap, and the mm-hmm. trap will eventually uh, snap down and do you know what traps do (laughs) what traps do exactly so a lot of it is us us accepting these things us seeing well what's in it for me and not thinking past that yeah i've seen a lot of christians approach politics from the point of view is when we get in charge then we'll put our stuff and we'll force our stuff and really they're just adopting a humanistic way of doing things um, there's no advantage in having a Christian bureaucracy. The Bible really doesn't speak of having bureaucracies at all. And the thing about whether it's the FDD, FDA, FCC, whatever we're talking about, these are people who, in order to keep their jobs, will want to keep the status quo or, from their perspective, tighten the screw so that they'll always have the control, the resources, etc., they were talking about Fauci being the highest paid civil servant. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure without his overreach, we would ever know that. But really, how many people even knew that in the position he had, not only was he getting paid, but that he was in a position to profit from patents and um, had his fingers in all sorts of things. And he's probably not the exception. No, oh. but, but the whole thing about licensing or whether it's the FCC, all that, what it does is it increases the power of the executive branch. And the enforcement of all the conditions for these licenses has caused the rise of the administrative state because everything is decided with regard to whether or not you have violated uh, restrictions on your license or the conditions of your license is not decided in a court of law, you know, the kinds of courts of law that arise from our common law, which was totally informed by scripture. It's all bureaucratic. It's more based on civil law out of Europe or the Soviet Union, where you're presumed guilty until proven innocent. So that's another thing that licensure has done. It has caused the rise of the bureaucratic state, which is destroying our justice system. Yes. Another one of those essays in the book, Our Threatened Freedom, was how there was a child who he, he was doing his version of a lemonade stand, except he was he was selling bait for people to go fishing. And there were like six people came and to shut him down. I mean, the most he ever made was maybe $10, but they didn't want to establish a precedent that somebody could just sell things on their own. Um, I remember at one point there was a, a proposal that uh, if you cut your children's hair at, or your you know husband's hair and you were unlicensed, that that was against the law and that if you were going to do things like that as the homemaker, you had to be properly credentialed. Wow. But I, that, I don't think that took hold, but it was being proposed, I think, somewhere back in the 80s, you know, because looking at the fact that wives and mothers did things that other people would get paid for, and of course, they would then pay their taxes. I think licensing has a lot to do with being able to come after somebody to get 
the government's cut? Well, not only the government's cut, but it's also used to protect the position of those who are licensed. So it's it's a trade restriction. It's like the old licenses that the the uh, British Crown would give certain favored persons to the exclusions of others being able to enter into commerce in that area. So this isn't really new at all. No, it's human avarice is not new. Well, the Bible tells us that we were made in God's image and part of his, one of his transferable attributes is dominion, but sinful man doesn't pursue dominion. He pursues domination. And it certainly felt that way when you saw how helpless people were during 2020 and 2021, where there were police in our area that would show up if somebody had his restaurant open and was allowing people to sit inside. It's almost like people have bought into the idea that we have to have a risk-free life. And the, the cost for that is an administrative bureaucracy that's going to make sure nothing bad ever happens to us. Which aggrandizes power to the government. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work. It's inefficient. And like we've discussed, it causes mediocrity. And I mean, just look at the old Soviet Union. It, it, it causes those sorts of outcomes, shortages, lack of, of technological progress. Right. So if you have the, the okay by the people in charge, then you don't change anything because you don't have competition. But as soon as you have competition, now prices could be undercut, um, new ways or innovative ways could be done. And so this is, you know, people play the game Monopoly and they think, oh, that's kind of a fun game. But they don't realize that sometimes we're the pieces in that game. Yeah, you can already see the results of the COVID lockdowns and restrictions have been to enrich big corporations, Best Buy, and to destroy independent uh, stores and, and, you know, small businesses. Well, I, I saw that firsthand recently. I went into a couple of stores that I hadn't been into for a number of months. I don't really like shopping. So when I go in, I really have to go in. But the inventory is so much less in these stores where they used to have hardly any open space. There's plenty of open space and not many customers. So I I agree that certain industries benefited while the average um, middle income person who worked really hard to have his own business or even have a franchise were really hurt by this. And maybe it was intentional. You'd almost think so when you read some of the writings by Klaus Schwab. You would almost think that. Yeah. So I always ask this to people I talk to who are in professions like medicine or uh, who've been in the military, but to you who is an attorney, if someone told you, I really think God is calling me into law, would you recommend they do it? Would you recommend they go to law school? How would you advise them to maneuver through this? They really feel called to do that. Yes, I think. And, and they won't have any choice except to go to law school unless there's I don't know that there's any state in the United States that still lets you read law before you take the bar. 
But yes, I would. Because we have enough lawyers who just went into law because they didn't know what else to do after getting worthless degrees in undergraduate school. So do you think, though, that, you know, people talk about when students go to university, their faith is challenged, it's undermined, and especially in law, you're going to study all these case law that often have nothing to do with real justice. So if somebody says, I I want to see justice prevail, is law school the place to go? Me it is, but that that could be argued because there are lawyers that say that what happens in court is not about justice. It's more about process. So as an attorney, would you recommend that people not put themselves in a position to go to court, <laughs> that it's not likely that they'll find justice there? Well, I'm, t- I'm mainly talking about in the realm of criminal law when I say that. Okay. In civil law, once you get into court, it's out of your hands and you never know what's going to happen. And and everything is uh, tightly scripted as to what kind of questions the juries can answer, that sort of thing. But, you know, I love going to court. I I loved trying cases. And and I have tried to use my profession uh, for justice. That's why I was helping people who had loved ones in the hospital. And, and I am an affiliate attorney with the Rutherford Institute. So, yeah, I'm in law because I want to do justice. But the process of law, the procedures of law are more about the procedures than they are about going and doing justice. So do you think if somebody felt called to do this, your recommendation would be they need a mentor who understands biblical law and helping them maneuver through the process and yeah. not to do it on their own? Yeah, I wish I'd had something like that. But back then, I wasn't, well, I probably wasn't a Christian, even though I believed. I see. Well, you're in a position now that you could possibly help other people who are, you know, trying to determine what God is actually calling them to do. I know that uh, many times I have been called for jury duty and just been appalled at how people are told that they have to put their biases and their beliefs aside and just listen to what the judge says in terms of this is how you're going to do this. And I don't know that we can be faithful and say, okay, I'll put my biases aside like anybody really can. Well, of course, there are those who believe that what the judges are instructing the juries to do that you just described is totally antithetical to the way that our legal system was was formed from the very beginning because juries did used to be openly or or did openly know that they were to judge both the facts and the law. But now any, any attorney who tried to argue that in court would probably be reported to the state bar. And, And that arises from the late, uh, 1800s, where uh, there was a movement in the legal profession, just like in the medical profession, to aggrandize power to make it into a priesthood uh, that no uh, layperson could fully understand. Because before then, people were competent to really routinely take their own cases to court. I mean, that's why we still have small claims court, because people used to go to court and represent themselves, and they understood how to do it a lot of times. But uh, whenever you have a mass of professionals get, get together and decide, well, we can't have that, 
that takes money out of our pockets. Then you start seeing a quest for power. And that's what's happened in law as well as in medicine. So you're really describing the condition of fallen man. And when given opportunity, he will desire to dominate others. When you started embracing theonomy, the study of God's law and the practice of it, did you experience a sense of that you had to unlearn a lot of things? Uh, yes, I did. I reached that point because I discovered Rushduni's Institutes of Biblical Law, and I would get up at four o'clock in the morning to, every morning to read it till I read both volumes. I mean, talk about an eye opener to me. It was a big eye opener. So, in taking the knowledge of Scripture. How has it changed your ability to practice law? I think it's made me much more introspective and thoughtful about my approaches. You know, a lot of what I do is administrative law. And so I'm pretty much confined within that, you know, following the procedures and having to deal with bureaucracies. I think it's given me more of a heart to really help those that I think have been wronged by regulators. Yeah, And I do the best I can with it, with the tools that I'm given uh, to try to help them. And of course, that's what God calls you to do. Do the best you can with the tools you've been given and you leave the outcome to him. So we're getting kind of to the end of our time. Do you have anything that you would like to share in general that you think people should know in terms of their personal responsibility in knowing the law? Yes, I think people should have more of an understanding of the law. And I would advocate that homeschoolers try to find some curriculum that teaches basic precepts of law. I think it would be a good thing for them to know things like their traffic codes, for instance, because let me give you an example that a lot of people think that if you go over the posted speed limit, that that's speeding. Well, at least in Texas, and I know in other states, Actual, what the what the law really is against is reckless driving. So if you're speed, if you're driving at a speed that's reckless and dangerous, that's what it prohibits. But people automatically think that, well, I went five miles over the speed limit, so I broke the law. That's not right. So in their own personal life, when they're lo- looking at those kinds of things, you know, because that impacts everybody. Every you know, almost everybody drives. Right. And, and everybody, you need to think about things like that so you can defend yourself. Now, a lot of uh, the problem is that a lot of the municipal judges and JPs who sit on those cases don't even know that or are driven by a desire to rack up revenue from these so-called traffic infractions. But something that basic, learning something that basic, I think would be a good start. And of course, I would add to that, that the basis of your entire curriculum, whether it's a homeschool or you're sending your children to a Christian school, is that they have to understand God's law because ultimately the judge who we must fear is the judge who created everything. And so if we want to get back to a more biblical basis, this may sound really obvious, you have to know what the Bible says in terms of justice. 
Yes, and I think the example I just gave is consistent with that because we're being fed lies about that sort of thing. And we as Christians must strive for for speaking the truth about it. It's not really on the subject, and maybe we could come back a later time and discuss it. When we talk about, you know, justice and somebody who would keep his business open being cited, but people who would come in and steal from him, and as long as it's not over a certain amount of money, would be released again. So I, I keep getting back to how there's so much in our system that's unjust that I, I can't see that unless people get fed up with injustice, there will be any change. And unless they call out to God and say, God, save us from this, and we're going to do it your way. Are you talking about those crews in California and other places that are invading stores and taking everything and the civil authorities will do nothing about it? Yes. Yes, they they need to pressure their civil authorities regarding that and speak out against that. What I'm saying is that unless we hate the fact that injustice prevails in any arena, whether it's licensure or how the procedures are in court, I think God wants us to hate what he hates. And God hates injustice. We need to hate it just as much or as much as we can. Obviously, we can't do it the way God would do it. But too often people are like, well, that's just the way it is. Well, God's going to hold us accountable if we are happy and satisfied with the way it is. That's what I think. Often people are indifferent to how things like that affect others because it's not affecting them at the moment, but it will eventually. And biblical history is full of when things got really, really, really difficult and they couldn't figure out a way to do something different. They called out on the name of the Lord. And by the time you do that, you're usually ready for the hard work that says, okay, what do I have to do to make this right to be in line with God? Because I don't think God's going to basically bless the people who don't care about his law. I agree. All right. Anything, um, books that you think might be useful for people who want to pursue what we've been talking about today that would be helpful? I mean, you've mentioned the two volumes of the Institutes of Biblical Law, volume one. And then volume two is called Law and Society. And there's actually a volume three, which puts all the compilation of the laws into categories. Anything else that you would recommend for people, Jerry Lynn? Well, yeah, I've got two recommendations for law. If you want to understand what's happened to law and the rise of the administrative state, there's a two-volume book by Harold Berman uh, called Law and Revolution. And then if you want to know more about how medicine has reached the point it has. Uh, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called The Social Transformation of American Medicine, The Rise of a Sovereign Profession and the Making of a Vast Industry by Paul Starr. And it's giving the history of where we are with these giant healthcare systems that don't seem to be doing the things they need to do to treat people. I, I recommend both those books. Berman's case, Berman's books are self-consciously Christian, or he, he brings up, you know, the Christian influence. And the other one by Paul Starr, I haven't noted anything, any uh, conscious 
mentions of that, but it's still a good history on how we got huge health care systems. You've got to diagnose the situation correctly before you can apply an effective remedy. And so that's why I think the history of how we got to where we are is really important for people to understand. Agreed. Well, Jerry Lynn, thanks for uh, agreeing to do it. You know, this all started when I saw you had made a comment or a post on Facebook about licensure. And I said, oh, I've wanted to talk about licensure for so long. And so that's how you got the call from me. Well, thank you for asking me. I enjoyed it. Well, very good. Listeners, you can always contact me with suggestions or questions at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.